I don't know about you, but that makes me tired just watching it. <laughs> and then next weekend's Mother's Day. Talk about some tired people, huh? So make sure you, uh, you bring your, your mom here next weekend, all right? Uh, by the way, this is the last message in our series on the family. And I want to give you a, a family opportunity, um, especially if your kids are, are a little bit older, and uh, can sit through a um, wonderful film together. It's uh, produced by our own filmmaker here at Wooddale Church. I mean, he goes here at Wooddale Church, uh, Tim Mahoney, Patterns of Evidence. And I would encourage you to uh, go on the website, check it out. You know, there are, uh, increasingly your kids are hearing that the stories of the Bible are not true, that uh, Moses is not a real person, the Exodus really didn't happen, on and on. And Tim does a phenomenal job of showing us the evidence. He's been doing this his whole life. He's been pursuing this. I think you'd find it very helpful, and it'd be a great discussion. Maybe have some ice cream afterwards, all right? So uh, as we start this last message, I wanted to share with you an excerpt uh, from a novel that you may have read at some point in time. It may sound familiar, but it goes this way. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was a season of light. It was a season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. Do you know who wrote that? Charles Dickens, right? In his historical novel, Tale of Two Cities, which is uh, set against... The French Revolution, a time of chaos, a time of uh, violence and immorality. And when I read that again, read it before, I was thinking to myself, boy, those words are uh, almost descriptive of the times that, that we are living in today. I mean, in some ways, these are the best of times, but in, in most ways, in many ways, Morally and spiritually, it just feels like the worst of times. And, you know, sometimes when you find yourself in a situation like that, you begin to think that, you know, it's never been this bad before. But the truth is, it has been this bad before. Uh, Throughout history, there have been periods of time where it's been very dark morally and spiritually. And one of those times was in 586 B.C. It was when... Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came in and raided Judah and Jerusalem and carted off tens of thousands of the people and resettled them around Babylon, think of modern-day Iraq, and in Babylon itself. He especially uh, wanted to take their brightest and best young men and women and settle them in his courts. His whole idea was, if I can convert them into good Babylonians, they will then influence everybody else to also become good Babylonians. And so it was an awkward time for the people. Now, the reason they got exiled there is because God was punishing and disciplining them. They've been rebellious over and over. They would not listen to God. And so it's like God had to send them into a 70-year timeout to kind of wake them up and, and realize how much they needed him. And suddenly they found themselves in a very foreign culture. I mean, imagine waking up one day and the language is not the same, the food is not the same, the religion is certainly not the same. The culture is entirely different. 
And for them, the question was, how do we, you know, how do we live in this kind of situation? How do we raise a family surrounded by all this paganism? And it was a very pagan culture. I mean, they worshipped all kinds of idols. They um, uh, practiced ritual prostitution. There's other forms of immorality. Everything that would have been unclean to an to a, uh, Orthodox Jew, it was there. And so, you know, that made it even more complicated. And, and so I look at our, our society today and, and I think about, you know, my, my time of being alive and, and I, I just don't ever remember our country being so morally and, and spiritually sick. And, uh, you know, I just read a statistic the other day that 65% of Americans now say that you don't have to believe in God for your morals. What they mean by that is simply... You know, we don't need an absolute moral giver. We don't need God to tell us what to think and believe, that we can decide our own morals by our own ideas, our own feelings, our emotions. And so, man, how do you bring up your kids in an environment like that? Well, when God allowed the people to go into exile into Babylon, he sent through the prophet Jeremiah some instructions to them on how to raise their families in that environment, how to live in that environment. And I find this word so appropriate for today. That's kind of where I, I teased you a little bit last weekend. I said, you're going to be surprised what God says he wants you and me to do in our culture, in our day. Now, we've, we've talked about this passage before. Pastor Kyle's spoken on it as well. So it's not like you've never heard this passage before, but I, I, I want to I amplify it in terms of our day and age, especially raising kids. So I've asked Pastor Adam if he would come up. Let's all stand together and let's uh, listen to the word of God as it's read in Jeremiah 29. He'll be reading verses 4 through 7 and verses 10 through 14. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. It will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Thank you. You can be seated. 
So in that passage of Scripture, uh, I think God gives us some tremendous encouragement in these discouraging days. And I want to lay them out in terms of principles with you. All right? So here's the first principle. God encourages you and me by letting us know that no matter what our circumstances are, he is in control. Say that last phrase with me, would you? He is in control. One more time. He is in control. Now, the question is, do you believe that? Do you believe that God is in control despite the chaos, despite how dark it may seem, how difficult it might be? Do you believe that God is in control and in control of the world and in control of your lives? You know, sometimes it's hard to understand as followers of Christ why we get kind of included in, you know, some of the suffering and difficulties that take place because of, you know, other people's rebellion and other people's sinfulness and, and their unwillingness to follow God's ways and God's truth. I mean, think about it. Who was taken into captivity? It wasn't just people who were being disobedient to God, but God allowed people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to also go into captivity. And many others who did fear God, who wanted to live and honor God, why did they have to get included? Why do you and I have to be included in this, in this crazy world? You look back at the text carefully and you begin to realize that God allowed them to be included because God loved his people. God loved even the Babylonians. And he wanted them to be leaders, examples, and witnesses to him and to his truth. So why does God allow you and me to live in this world? Why doesn't he just take us all home? You know, why, why do we have to kind of suffer and deal with the consequences of people's rebellion. Because God says, I want you to be leaders, examples, and witnesses pointing people to me and pointing them to the truth. So we have a reason, we have a purpose to go for why we are going through this. Remember, God is in what? God is in control. Second principle. God reminds us that though we may feel captive by the culture, he has not forgotten us. Say that phrase to me, please. He has not forgotten us. One more time. He has not forgotten us. Do you honestly believe that? Because sometimes it does feel like God has forgotten us, doesn't it? Especially when you're going through a hard time, a, a difficult time, a lonely time. I think about our students and, and I think about, you know, how hard it is on them in our culture, in our day today, and the epidemic of loneliness among young adults especially. But God reminds me he hasn't forgotten us. When Adam was reading that passage in verse 10 and verse 14, God says to his people, you know, in 70 years, I'm going to bring you back home, meaning to Judea, to Jerusalem. But did you know that in, in the New Testament, Jesus tells us that someday he's also going to bring us home, but it's not going to be to Minnesota. <laughs> he's going to bring us home to be with him. It's going to be in the new heaven, in the new earth. John 14, he told his disciples, I'm coming back again. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, he says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He's coming back again. Do you believe that? No? Why are we doing it? What are we doing here if you don't believe that? He's coming back again. When? I don't know. But he promised he's coming back again. And he's going to take us to be with him. Read John 14. 
It's going to take us to be with him. Now, it may be tomorrow, it may be in 20 years, it may be 100 years from now, but I know this much. I know whether he comes back and takes me or I die, I'm going to go and be in his presence. He has not forgotten about you and me. And that's really good news given the world that we live in today. Third principle, okay? God wants you and me to build healthy relationships in our families so we can build healthy relationships with those who are not in his family yet. And that's where we're going to camp for a little bit, okay? Because, because God, you know, God made us to have relationships. And he wants us to have healthy relationships within our family, within our church. But he also wants us to have healthy relationships at school, at work, in the community, amongst our neighbors, etc. Because God has a purpose for leaving us here. And that is to build those healthy relationships that God wants us to have. You see, God meant for us to be relational creatures. That's how God made you and me. To want to have relationships. We need relationships. According to the U.S. Uh, Surgeon General, those who, who don't have friendships, those who you know, are lonely, they have a 30% increased chance of dying prematurely. We know that loneliness, loneliness is a contributor to strokes, cancer, dementia, depression, and anxiety. You know, it's also wild. I read this the other day. Those who spend two hours a day or more on social media tend to be lonely, which is kind of the opposite of what social media is supposed to do for us, to build relationships, right, to broaden network. But what it actually does is it isolates us. It creates insecurities in us. It doesn't really contribute to that. How do, you have, how do you have relations? How do you build healthy relationships? Well, one of the books in the Bible that talks a lot about relationships, which we're going to dip into a little bit today, is, is Proverbs. Proverbs, many of them were written by Solomon to his children to say to them, here's how to have the right kind of relationships. And in the book of Proverbs, you'll find out that there are, there are basically three kinds of people that you're going to come across in life. Friends, foes, and fools. Let's say that together. Friends, foes, and fools. You're going to run into them everywhere. They're going to be at school. They're going to be at work. They're going to be in the neighborhood. They might even be in your family. I don't know. But let's start by talking about friends. What does it mean to be a friend? What does it mean to build friendship? What does it mean to have friends? I want to start by talking a little bit about the importance of loyalty in friendship. If we're going to talk about friendship, we're talking about loyalty. And listen carefully. When, when we're talking about friendship, I don't just simply mean your relationship with somebody who you're not related to. You know, husbands and wives should be the best of friends. Siblings, brothers and sisters should be the best of friends. Now that sounds foreign sometimes. All right? We, you know, within our family, there should be this sense of friendship, there should be this sense of devotion, there should be this sense of, of loyalty, that we are loyal to one another. And the friendships that we, that we want to build, we want to make sure loyalty is part of it. And we all want friends. 
We all need friends. Although I had a guy come up to me just a couple weeks ago and uh, say to me, he said to me, he said, I don't like people. So he just bluntly said, I don't like people. He said, I don't like people because people have problems. They bring the problems with them, and I already have enough problems. I don't like people. And I thought, wow. There's a guy that's going to have a hard time making friends. I guess he doesn't want friends. But, you know, sometimes we so desperately need to have friends in our lives. But, you know, to have a friend, you have to learn to be a friend, don't you? And I think we're forgetting, even with social media, I think we're forgetting about friendship. I, I read a while back, I may have shared it with you, that, you know, they're now offering classes. They're teaching people how to date. Do you know why? Because all the dating apps have ruined relationships. People don't know how to relate through a computer. It, it all gets so idealistic. How do I have a relationship with somebody? They're almost afraid to because of how it's all set up. I, I think we're forgetting how to be friends, how to make friends. I was reading a study by some psychologists, happened a while back. You know, a lot of times, um, you know, these folks will spend so much money on these studies for things that when they conclude, you just go, duh. All right? But they put a bunch of people in a room. They gave them a pen and paper, and they said, I want you to write down the initials of the people you dislike. Now, some people could only come up with, like, one name, you know, one set of initials. Other people ran out of paper. They had so many people that disliked. Do you know what the psychologists discovered? Here's what, here's, here's what millions of dollars was probably spent on. What they discovered is that the people who dislike others the most are the most disliked. Duh, right? What's that teach us about friendship? It's like I said, you know, it's like that guy that said to me, I don't like people. Well, then don't expect to have friends. If you want to have friends, you have to like people. You have to. You have to care about people. People have to matter to you. So how do you go about, how do you go about making friends? How do you go about getting people to like you? How do you go about liking others? And to answer that question, I'll just tell you a little story from history. In Britain, there were two prime ministers that were contemporaries of each other. One was Benjamin Disraeli. The other one was William Gladstone. Two men, uh, Gladstone was more liberal, Disraeli was more conservative. Gladstone held uh, the prime ministership for four different terms, whereas Disraeli only held it for two different terms. But Disraeli was always the more popular of the two. Why was he more popular? Well, there's something that happened that will explain it to us. Both men, uh, in turn, went to dinner with a young lady. And after the Two days, she went to dinner one night with one and went to dinner the other night with the other. She was asked by the press what her impressions were of these, of these two different men when, when, when they found out that she had gone out with these men. She said, well, when I went out with, uh, with Mr. Gladstone, I left dinner and I thought to myself, he is the most brilliant man in Britain. She said... The next day, she said, when I went out uh, to the dinner with Disraeli, I left that dinner and I thought to myself, I am the most brilliant woman in all of Britain. <laughs> what is the difference? One man was all about himself. The other man, at least in that instance, was all about who he was. You know, that is, a, that is actually a biblical concept. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, it says, don't be selfish. 
Don't try to impress others. That's hard not to do, isn't it? We feel like to get people to like us, we need to impress them with our abilities or with our looks or whatever it is. So we work hard at impressing others. And when they're not impressed with us, then we get depressed, right? Paul goes on, he says, be humble. Think of others as better than yourselves. That would be a great discussion to have as a family. Sit around the table with some ice cream or whatever you want and just have this conversation. You know, what does it really mean to think better of somebody else? How do you actually do that? And how do I do that? How, do you guys see that in me? How, you know, how could I be better at that? Paul goes on in verse 4. He says, don't, don't look out only for your own interests. That would be another great discussion, huh? What does it mean to look out for your own interests? Yeah, i, I got to be honest with you. I've, I, in my prayer time, I have kind of a, 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 a strategy that I use for my, my prayer time. And, and one of the things I added recently, God kind of pointed out to me in a different verse is I need to talk to God more and more about my own self-interest. That I, I am very interested in myself. And so are you. I mean, how much time do you and I spend thinking about ourselves? An enormous amount of time, right? We're all into self-interest. Paul says, don't look out for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Don't you love to be around people who are interested in you? If you want to have a friend, if you want to build strong friendships, whether it's in your family or outside your family, in the community, if we're going to change the world around us, we've got to have this mindset of befriending others, taking an interest in them, a sincere and legitimate interest in their lives. But you have to be wise about how how you do that. You have to be wise about who you put first, which um, we're reminded of in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 26. It says, the righteous choose their friends, how? Carefully. But the way of the wicked leads them astray. Now, here's what that means. The word that's used there for choose friends is actually an agrarian term. People back then were farmers, gardeners, right? And um, it's the idea of how a person goes looking for land to plant the wheat or barley or whatever it's going to be in. They go and they choose land carefully. They don't, you know, they don't go to a swamp. They don't go to a desert. They try to find the richest, the best soil with the best drainage in order to have a good crop. Solomon's saying when you choose a friend, you got to be that careful. you got to be careful who you're, who you're going to befriend, who you're going to be friends with. Because if you, if you try to make an association with the wrong person, they can take you down and not build you up. And that's what friendship is all about. In the family and outside the family, we want to engage others in order to build them up. And we want them to build us up. Not tear us down, not take us down. Now, does that mean, here's an important question, does that mean your students? Does that mean you? Does that mean us? Does that mean that we should not befriend unbelievers, people with a different worldview? No. Jesus was noted in Matthew chapter 11 as being a friend of who? He was a friend of sinners. But when Jesus approached sinners, when he hung out with sinners, was it to go down the pathway of sin with them? No. It was to get them to walk on the pathway of righteousness 
with him. But here's the deal. Jesus didn't just go out to make converts, right? He wasn't a headhunter, so to speak. He wasn't all about, I'm in this relationship with you to get you to become this way. Yes, he invited them to go his way with them, but if they rejected going his way, did he then turn his back on them and hate them? No. Remember the rich young ruler who said, no, I'm not going to give it up, and I don't want to follow you after Jesus said, sell everything, come follow me? What an invitation. It says that he walked away. And it says in Mark, and Jesus still loved him. And Jesus loved him. And it says in John 13 that he loved his own to the very end, even Judas to the very end. Called him friend in the garden. What an example of what it means to be a friend. So I guess what I'm talking about here is we've got to learn to be friends with a purpose, okay? And the purpose is if I really care about you, if you have cancer and I have the cure for cancer, I'm not going to keep it to myself and hide it from you. What kind of friend would I be? Of course I'm going to tell it to you. Of course I want you to know about the cure because I care about you. So in our friendships, in and outside of our family, especially outside of our family, you know, we want our friendships to have purpose to them. And I want to suggest to you uh, these purposes. And we'll get this listed out on the on the notes later on the uh, website, on the small group notes for you. But number one, you know, it's important that we model satisfaction and joy in the Lord consistently. If I, if I want people to walk the path of Christ with me, then I need to model in front of them that I'm satisfied with him. Remember homework last weekend? Remember I said, you know, here's a challenge. Maybe you should sit down with your kids and say, do you sense that I'm satisfied with God in my life? Do you sense I have joy in my life? That'd be hard. It may not be easy to do that. Maybe you didn't want to do that, or maybe you did do that, and I wonder what they said. But I got to model that. Why would I want somebody to come and, and follow me and follow Jesus, and they look at my life, and all they see in me is complaining and negativity and being dissatisfied? It's like saying to somebody, I want you to come, and, and uh, I want to treat you to lunch. It's a terrible restaurant. The food is lousy, but... but you know, I'd like you to come. Who wants to go, right, and have lousy food? Hey, I want you to follow me. I want you to be a Christian and then complain, 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 complain. All right, number two, pray for your friends passionately. I mean, pray for them. Pray for that person. Thirdly, serve your friend with humility. It's not about you. It's how can I serve you? And last but not least, share with your friend appropriately. When it's the right time, share how God has changed your life. We've talked about these things before. But it's being a friend and being a friend with a purpose. With a purpose. Now, listen carefully. It's also very important to model and teach our children that when our friends fail us, because they will, we forgive them. That when our friends fail us, especially our unbelieving friends, when they fail, we forgive. Which is something we're not always good at, especially when it comes to friendship, because we don't always allow much room for failure in friendships. Dr. Billy Graham was called the, friends, uh, the friend of presidents, different presidents, Sometimes those friendships got him in a little bit of trouble. And one of the presidents that he befriended was President Bill Clinton. 
And of course, President Bill Clinton got in trouble and finally it came out and finally he owned up to the fact that he had behaved immorally with a young intern in the White House. It's all obviously public knowledge. And uh, when he finally owned it, right, and admitted to it, a lot of people backpedaled from the president, and a lot of them were evangelical Christians. Well, about two months after Clinton kind of owned up everything, Bill Clinton was, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Dr. Graham was on the Today Show. It's like two months after Clinton owned up to it all. And they're asking him all kinds of questions. And uh, the host or hostess asked Dr. Graham, and what are your thoughts about Bill Clinton? And Billy Graham said, I forgive him. I'm still his friend. And Billy Graham said that that one word that he mentioned on national TV, forgive, he said, earn him some of the ugliest letters from Christians. That's sad. Uh, sometime later, Graham was in New York at the same time the president was in New York for the 75th anniversary of Time magazine. And they're at this, this big dinner, and uh, Graham is sitting at a different table, the president's at another table, and uh, the great Yankee Joe DiMaggio publicly refused to sit with the president at his table. So you know what Billy Graham did? He got up from his table and he went over and he sat with the president. And when they asked him why, you know what he said? Because I want to show people what it means to be a friend. I was thinking to myself, what would Jesus have done? He would have gone over there and sat there too. It does not mean that Graham approved or even defended what the president did. Of course he didn't. But he didn't let it stop him from being a friend. Boy, that's a true friend. Remember what Jesus said from the cross? Father, forgive them, for they what? They know not what they do. All right? That's friendship. Let's talk now about how we treat our foes, our enemies, and particularly this whole issue of if you're going to change the culture around you, you have to learn, as Jesus said, to love your what? Your enemies. It's one of the hardest things to do, isn't it? To love our foes. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 22 says, Do not say, I'll pay you back for this wrong. Wait for the Lord. He'll avenge you. Notice what the writer is saying is, look, it's not up to you to get vengeance and justice and judgment. Leave that in God's hands. You be forgiving and you be loving. Which is so hard for us to do. If you've raised kids, you've heard, you've seen it happen in your home when somebody hits somebody else and they say, well, he hit me first. Or when somebody tattles on somebody else, well, well, she said that first. And, you know, we never outgrow that. We, we maintain that mindset that if you did that to me, I'm somehow justified doing that back to you. And that's what God wants us to break in our lives. Proverbs chapter 25 says this. It says, if your enemies are hungry, give them food to eat. If they are thirsty, give them water to drink. Jesus said, give them their coat. He said, turn the other cheek if they slap you. He said, go the extra mile. He says, you will, keep, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads, and the Lord will reward you. Now, when I first read that passage 
you know, years ago. And Paul quotes it again in Romans chapter 12. I kind of liked it because I, I like this idea that, that what it's saying there is, man, you know, when you do good things to people, it's like pouring hot coal on them. It's going to make them suffer. It's going to make them miserable. So maybe I can't get even by being mean, but I can get even by being good. And it's like, that's not the right interpretation of this passage. Here's what it means. If you go back to ancient times and even some places today, the way they heated their little, the way they would heat their little home or cook their food were in clay ovens and they would use hot coal. In those days, some people were too poor to even have coal. So they would wear a, a, a covering over the head and they would put a pot on their head and they would go walking by the wealthy homes, which were usually several stories, and the wealthy people who were generous, who had extra coal, they would take tongs, they would literally place some hot coals in the pot from the second floor, uh, sorry, from the second floor into, that, into that pot that person had on their head. It was all an act of generosity. It was all an act of grace. It wasn't to make them sweat and burn. God says, you know, I'll handle all the justice, judgment issues in the end. But as for you right now, I want you to show grace. I want you to show mercy. I want you to show kindness when you are mistreated. And I, I came across a story about a guy named Jeremy Courtney. Jeremy Courtney is the CEO of the Preemptive Love Coalition. I just love that term. The Preemptive Love. That means I do it before. The Preemptive Love Coalition. They're involved in all kinds of places and ways of, of showing love where love may not necessarily be appreciated. And one of those places is in Iraq. And they have sponsored surgeries for kids, heart surgeries for kids that if the kids don't have, they're going to die. And so they've gone into Iraq, and they were in Iraq doing these heart surgeries, and one of, the, one of the Muslim clerics, a radical, issued a fatwa. And his fatwa said this, we must stop these heart surgeries lest it lead our children and their parents to love their enemies. Hear what he's saying? He's saying, if we allow those people in here to do those heart surgeries, then our people, our families are going to love them, and they're our enemies. You know, the Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ what? Christ died for us. His love is preemptive, isn't it? Our love, the love of the church these days has got to be preemptive. We just got to go in there and love and convince our enemies that what we have is real, that it's true. And as you've heard me say over the last year or so, you know, that, that what the world is seeing in the church in general today is how unloving and unkind and how bitter and how mean we can be. As we mimic politicians, as we mimic, you know, the culture. We're not supposed to be like that. We're supposed to be so different from that we're supposed to be a, a sweet aroma in a world that's filled with, with, you know, a stench of immorality and confusion and violence and hatred. We have to be willing to make a difference for the cause of Christ. And last but not least, stay clear of fools. <laughs> Just stay clear of fools. In Proverbs, fools are described, first of all, as, as people who are hard-headed, meaning they don't think they need advice. They are thick-headed. 
when you try to give them advice, they won't listen. And they are empty-headed because when you give them advice, they do the opposite of it. Teach your children to recognize fools and not, not be in relationship with fools. Whether it's at school or whether it's at home or whether it's at work or whether it's in the neighborhood. For their sake. So they're not dragged down as a result of it. Now, I did have one more principle. I'm five minutes over time. Can you give me three more minutes? All right. If not, you're welcome to walk out. All right. That was really pressure, wasn't it? All right. Real quick. Listen. God wants us to be. I'm talking about Woodville Church now, okay? God wants us to be a strong, safe, and loving community of believers towards each other. Say it with me, please. God wants us to be a strong, safe, and loving community of believers toward each other. So here's the deal. We've been talking about families this whole series. Listen carefully. Now I'm, I'm just saying, listen, we need to be God's family together. Because I want to tell you something. We have never needed each other more than we need each other today. The world is becoming hostile and increasingly unfriendly to you and to me. We want to reach the world. We want to love the world. But listen, what's going to give us the strength and ability to do that is we're going to have to love each other. Jesus made that clear in John 13. By this, the world will know that you're my followers. You, if you love one another. And I'm just going to rip through these really quick. We'll put them on the notes. But I want to give you five reasons that I wrote down the other day as I was thinking about this. Five reasons why I need you and you need me so much. First of all, I need you for accountability to stay on the right path. Because there's a lot of wrong paths to take today. Secondly, I need you for protection when morals and values come under attack. Because I'm telling you, if you're isolated and you hear morals and values constantly being attacked in whatever form it is, sexually, whatever it is, listen, if you're by yourself, you begin to wobble a little bit, you begin to question, you begin to compromise. I, I need you, you need me, we need each other to stay focused on what is the truth. Number three, we need each other for fellowship when isolation from the world happens. We need a place to come back to, youth group, junior high, senior high, fifth, sixth, our kids' ministry, our adult ministries, our small groups. We need a place to come back to. Number four, we need each other for power to persevere in trials. And last but not least, we need each other for hope that in the end, he's coming back. We need each other for hope that in the end, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would help us walk away from the series, Lord, determined in our hearts and minds to be stronger as individual families and to be stronger as a family of God. We need each other, Lord. We need you in each other. And Lord, the world needs us. The world needs us to show up and be Jesus. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name.